welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we talk to students, educators, and thought leaders who are innovators and creatives in education. I'm your host, Tanya Sheckley. Thanks for joining us. Hi, everyone. I'm here today with Sunny Williams. Sunny is the co-founder of Tiny Docs, and I'm really interested to hear how Tiny Docs came about. So you have a master's in business and also a law degree, and you've co-founded an organization that creates care tunes for children in hospital and healthcare settings. Can you share with us the origin story or what problem did you set out to solve with Tiny Docs? Absolutely. Uh, first, thanks for having me on today. I'm really excited Thank to you. share our story. It's an honor and privilege. Uh, Tiny Doc started because when I was a kid, I was in and out of hospitals. I wasn't, I didn't have a, cr- a chronic disease or anything like that. I was just a really clumsy kid who played a lot of sports and bumped my head, broke my bones, you know, you name it. I had it and I ended up in the ER, ER for it. And uh, a lot of times I would sit in the examining room and I was, as a kid, very scared and anxious, uh, naturally, as most kids are. <laughs> In, Hospitals in are scary and anxious places. Yeah. <laughs> Whether you're a kid or an adult, they can be yes. very intimidating settings. And I had many doctors who were very kind and, and well-meaning, but they weren't the best communicators. And they spoke many times in a language that my young mind just couldn't comprehend. And I just wanted someone or something to help guide me through what was going to come next in my health journey. And my mom and dad were college educated folks, but they just weren't equipped with the language to help me understand what was going to happen either. And nine times out of 10 before leaving uh, to come back for surgery the next day, uh, a provider or someone would hand me a medical brochure. And for a child, a medical brochure, unfortunately, is, is a wasted resource, right? It's not written in a language I could understand. Uh, there were no illustrations or pictures. and. I, I was still anxious. I was still stu- still fearful, and I was still very much in the dark about what was going to happen next with regards to my health. Um, so, would I grow up to be a healthy young adult? But when I was trying to figure out, kind of face this uh, this moment in my life where I was trying to figure out how was I going to marry my passions and impact. And at that cleavage point, friends and family were starting families of their own. And I was hearing a similar narrative when they would take their kid to the ER or primary care physician, smart doctors, very well-meaning, anxious kid, anxious parents or caregivers still giving out these medical brochures. And I just thought in the, in an age where we have such a access to such a wealth of technology and resources, why are we using such an antiquated method to educate kids and families about health? And I'm an 80s kid, I'm a product of the 80s. I grew up on Saturday morning cartoons. And I just thought, you know, what if we created a cast of characters that kids loved and adored and trusted and created stories around various health procedures that kids undergo or kids face during their, uh, during adolescence and looked out and saw no one was really doing anything about it. You know, this was a personal problem for me, problem that was near and dear to my heart. I, didn't have the creative background to develop these care tunes myself, but I knew I could recruit a team to do it. And that's how Tiny Knox started. I recruited a team, uh, started Tiny Knox and started making these care tunes and, uh, here we are. 
So where are your care tunes now? Do you have hospitals throughout the Chicago area using them? Are they national, international? So we do have a couple folks using us internationally, but mostly it's it's national. It's distributed through hospitals, hospital networks, more pediatric offices, and a few are actually available on, on our website as well. So you can go to our website and check them out and see um, what they think and hopefully they're helpful in creating impact. That's great. Yeah, definitely something that's needed. I know as I had a child who was also in and out of the hospital and had surgeries and medical procedures, even as an adult, they still hand us the medical brochure (laughs) about everything that's going to happen. But yeah, then it was up to the parent and up to me as the parent to really relay, okay, here's what all of that stuff meant. Here's what's happening with your body. And here's what we're going to try and do to make it better. But it's all really scary. It, it's super scary. And one thing that I didn't know when I first started out, but now know very well now, is that allaying that anxiety, it's critical for the long-term health of the child. Studies show that if you allay anxiety and educate patients, it leads to better health outcomes on, on the back end. Uh, which is why it's really important to make sure folks are educated. They know how to take care of their bodies, especially kids and parents. Arm them with information so that they are making the best healthcare decisions on behalf of their family. And in the end, will lead to uh, better health outcomes on the other end. Have you seen any direct outcomes related to kids using CareTunes versus kids that didn't have access to that and the level of trauma or anxiety or, or anything that, they, that they've experienced? Or is this really more anecdotal still and just aimed towards making kids smile? I know that's part of your company's goal is you know measuring success in health outcomes and smiles. Do you have any of the data or background on the health outcomes connected with it? It's mostly anecdotal at this point in terms yeah. of time. But we do have a ton of pediatric journals out there that, that have addressed this topic and show that allaying anxiety does lead to better health outcomes. Um, but most of our evidence so far has been anecdotal, uh, which for us is our currency in, in part. It gets us up doing what we do. We love getting notes from kids and parents and, and caregivers who say, hey, we were going through a really tough spot with our family, but Tiny Docs significantly improved how we feel, what we knew, and it just was a, a sense of relief for everything, just knowing at least what the health journey looked like for our family. So we're incredibly grateful for everyone that writes us. It's something that we, we love doing. It gets us up every day and, uh, you know, we'll continue to do it for as long as we need to. That's incredible. And that's the goal, right? Is to, to do what you love to make an impact and to know that you're helping other families. And that's part of the philosophy of your company or the philosophy of your company is measuring that success by the smiles. How did you come about that as a philosophy as opposed to, you know, more of a traditional business sense of dollars and cents and we need to, you know, meet the bottom line, make sure we're in the black, make sure we're creating a profit. And you're really looking at the impact you're making on other humans. For sure. So for us, it was never a, an either or proposition. But service has always been something near and dear to my heart ever since I was a kid. I loved helping others. And I saw there should be no reason that starting this business should be a departure from what's in my heart and in the heart of everyone that's been collaborators on Tiny Docs. My, my belief and the belief that I share with my co-founders and employees at Tiny Docs is that if 
Our goal is to help make a billion people smile and improve kids' health outcomes. If we're successful in, in making a billion people smile, you know, the money will take care of itself. Um, but first and foremost, impact drives our decision making. And so long as we are doing that and that's the forefront of our mind, then our mission will continue to stay, uh, true. And we, you know, the money part, like I said, will, uh, everyone will be fine financially, I believe. Yeah. So you're, you know, you're measuring your success through smiles and really wanting to reach those. And, you know, a lot of what I do is education focused. I run an elementary school. And so I guess you're, you know, you're not in the classroom, but you're definitely focused on education. You're educating these kids all the time on what's going to happen. So thinking of like how to tie those things together and looking at a big question, what might happen in classrooms if we measured success by smiles and by happiness and by student engagement instead of by grades or test scores? Yeah, so I think that is a beautiful question. Um, I, I think what what would happen is my assumption with this is that you would have your classrooms be more of laboratories and you can make, make more discoveries and students can make more discoveries on their own kind of what their academic journey would look like. And they might even stumble upon really cool passions that they might have. Uh, one thing that saddens me, I wish that we in classrooms kind of fostered a sense of wonder more, like how do things work as opposed to teaching the test or making sure that we are meeting the, the benchmarks um, with regards to the testing that we have to do. But I just feel like you would have happier students, you would have happier teachers, uh, you probably have happier administrators, and probably a more passionate student body who would really be engaged in learning and self-discovery and a sense of just mystery and being open-minded about what how how things work and what their learning journey might look like beyond the classroom. Yeah. Yeah. Which sounds, I mean, that's a lot of what you're doing with the cartoons is kind of breeding that sense of wonder and sharing how things work. And I think you're right. I think if we gave kids the opportunity, you know, really measured their success on how happy they were and how engaged they were and how much they wanted to go to school and how much they were looking forward to their next project, that it would definitely change the way that we do a lot of things. Yeah, I think one thing that I mean, it's a it's something that educators, um, what you are trying to do is foster a sense of learning and wonder and curiosity that goes beyond the classroom. So that when they leave the classroom, they they still wonder about things. They still question things. They still want, they want to continue to learn outside of the classroom. They want to read. They want to understand how the world works. And they start asking bigger and better and more beautiful questions um, that kind of sends them on, on new learning rabbit holes, right? But when you're crunched for time in class, in a classroom, it's, it's kind of hard to create that environment and create kind of a, a place for students to, to be in a mindset where they start thinking that way. That's, so it's tough. It's, it's, it's incredibly tough. I don't envy it, but I, I do think if we did measure success in a classroom setting based on student engagement and happiness, it, it'd probably be for the better. Uh, I'll just go out on a limb and say that. It would definitely be different. It would definitely be a change. And I think we do have those kids who have a sense of wonder and go home and read and ask big questions. 
But I think the challenge is that they're not given the time to do that in the classroom because the schedule is so crunched that those kids that have those bigger questions aren't experiencing that in the classroom. They're not experiencing that in school. It's not encouraged in school. In fact, in a lot of our traditional school settings, it's quite the opposite where that is almost squashed in school because we want kids, you know, we've had a large group of kids and we need them to sit and to listen and to be quiet and to pay attention, not to run around and ask big questions and try and figure out how things work. Right. And I I didn't mean to imply that that's not happening. I know it is. But just think if you created that environment in the classroom, you know, those kids who are going to, there are naturally going to be those kids who are continue to wonder, who are curious, who are going to go outside the classroom and are going to continue studying and asking questions. But I, I think the magic is exposing more kids in a classroom saying who might not have been thinking that way or might get exposed to a new idea and might trigger a new thought for them. That's where the magic and beauty comes from establishing that type of environment, that type of ecosystem within the classroom. It's more of a classroom project, not just a project of one or a project of a couple. Yeah. And there are definitely schools that are doing it. And I think that there's a lot of talk in education moving more in that direction and moving more towards just providing kids with the skills that they're really going to need to be successful in the future. Um, so as you're running a company, you know, what what skills do you really see are going to be necessary for the future workforce? What are you looking for? What are you seeing? You know, what do you think is lacking? Critical thinking is one. One of our values is really asking, asking questions, questioning everything. I hate that there's some point in during our academic careers where we stop asking questions, just kind of having the curiosity of a four-year-old in terms of how things work, because a lot of innovation and really big ideas just come from sometimes a really simple question that no one asked before. So that's that's certainly one of them. Another one's leadership. I think being able to develop strong leaders is critical and super important for our workforce today. Another thing is listening. And one thing that if I ran a school, (laughs) I would have improv classes for kids. I took improv while I was at Second City. And honestly, it was one of those big aha moments in life. Um, Not necessarily that I was going there to become a comedian or become a funny actor or a comedic actor. It was just more, they instill in you skills that are great for business and great for life. Just the way you're able to listen, go on discoveries, work as a team, be collaborative, sometimes get up on stage and not know what's going to happen. And that's life sometimes. Sometimes you just kind of, uh, you have to wing it and, and trust your teammates and trust the people on your team to make things happen. Life doesn't always come with a script. I know it's cliche, but it's true. And getting trained in those types of skills and developing a really keen ear and listening and really understanding maybe sometimes this is what someone is saying, but maybe there's a, a layer of subtext under there that not a lot of people are picking up, but you might be picking up and really understand what they're saying. Those are all really important things. I guess the last skill that I would say is being able to be mindful, uh, mindful of yourself and mindful of others and uh, being able to take time for yourself to set intentions for the day, meditate and take body scans and kind of understand where you are, where, where you want to be and what it will take to get there. I think developing mindful habits is critical and valuable to help people get to where they want to go. Yeah. That's a phenomenal list. Um, 
teaching to ask questions and still having that sense of wonder and approaching things as if you know absolutely nothing about them and being curious, developing leadership skills, developing listening skills. I think that's one that we overlook a lot when we talk about critical thinking and collaboration. We talk about public speaking and sharing ideas and being comfortable with people, but we don't often talk about that listening skill. Um, And it's interesting to hear you bring up sometimes, you know how in life things just all kind of connect sometimes at the right moment. Mm -hmm. So I found Bossy Pants, Tina Fey's book in a little free library recently, and she got her start at Second City, which if I wouldn't have been reading that book, I would have never heard of Second City. And so then for you to bring it up in a conversation as well. And then I also work with a business coach who is also an improv coach, and that's another piece of her her life. And so whenever we do business retreats and get-togethers, she always has all of these improv things for us to do, which always makes us really uncomfortable. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's not fun. It's not comfortable. It's not easy. But it does, yeah, it does teach you how how to listen and how to kind of react or engage your reactions in the moment. And Tina Fey talks about the rule of improv, the first rule being yes and. Like you never immediately say no to something. And that's something that I work on remembering like in my personal life and professional life, because my knee-jerk reaction to most things is usually no. And I've got to think about it and I've got to sleep on it and I've got to ruminate and figure out how it'll work. And I can come back and be like, wait, you know, what you brought up was actually a really good idea. And so if you can start with that yes and reaction when you're listening, yeah, that's what I've learned from improv in the last week. (laughs) Building on each other's ideas, just imagine being in a brainstorming session, right? And, And someone keeps on bringing up ideas that you think are bad and you just continually just shoot that person down. Yeah. Uh, that person one is going to at some point become discouraged at offering ideas, but even just giving it some thought and building on the idea and just thinking, well, what if like we did that, but also did this eventually it might lead to like a really cool polished idea or project. That's kind of the, the spirit of yes. And not that the next idea that someone offers that builds on top of the idea is great. But if you kind of take this collaborative effort of everyone in the room, just yes, anding each other can lead to something really spectacular and you can make uh, some incredible discoveries for your company or maybe even yourself. So you've just planned my next staff meeting. <laughs> <laughs> have you tried that? Have you done that in company meetings and had kind of a round robin of brainstorming and yes, and responses? Yeah, I, mean, I think if you're in any sort of, whether it's creative or not, whether your business is creative at heart or not. Just having that spirit is incredibly helpful, not only for morale, but also it just helps people who might feel a little shy offer ideas, knowing that their idea won't be summarily just dismissed. And you'll feel supported as a team. And it's super helpful. We, we try because some, sometimes some of the crazier ideas or projects that have emerged from meetings have come from really silly ideas. So. You just never know. Just the silliest or just kind of throwaway idea might lead to some incredible insight or new venture for a business. So that's why we try to instill in everyone who comes to be part of the Tiny Ox team to, yes, and have a spirit of open-mindedness and try to make everyone feel supported in, in meetings and brainstorming sessions. I'd love to dig into that more. Do you have examples of some of the silly ideas? You started to laugh and it made me want to hear <laughs> like, what's happened. Uh, and if you don't, it's okay. Off the top of my head, I'm trying. Uh, 
It's an on-the-spot question. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Every week we have kind of these pitch meetings where we're pitching new ideas for episodes and we'll weave in some sort of health topic into it. And the other day we had one where I think someone threw out the idea of it being like set in like a tiny house in a garden. And it was just kind of like, where did that come from? Like it's, it was just really, really bizarre. And after a while, I say about 15, 20 minutes, we actually landed on a, in a place where, Oh wow, this is something that could be really, really cool and neat. And I think kids would really get engaged with this story idea. And now it's in development and we're storyboarding it. So there's some times where I think everyone collectively is like, what, where is this going? But because that people are just like discouraging each other or shooting down ideas or people feel free in the, in the meetings to just speak up. It's like I said, it just kind of leads to something that's meaningful and worthwhile. So here we are. I wish I had a better example, but I don't right now. Oh, that's great. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah, no, thank you. Um, And then the last piece that you brought up was mindfulness and just being having that sense of awareness and the sense of mindfulness for yourself and your body and doing those check-ins with yourself um, and with others, being mindful of those who are around you. Um, And I think those last two definitely really tie together with a lot of what we try to work with kids on in their emotional intelligence and building that sense of being able to listen to others and also knowing how you feel in your own body and how your actions affect others is a huge piece of just character building that we need to help all of our young students with. Yeah, I just wish that was a tool that I had when I was younger. And I just think it's so powerful. And I'll admit, I'm not as I don't use it as much as I should. There are days where I'm really, really good about being mindful and I, my phone will go off and I'll have my mindful five minutes. And then there are other days where I ignore it, but I know the days that I do stop, do a body scan, kind of check in with myself and see how I'm doing. I just have much better days. I'm just calmer and my head's a lot less cluttered and I can kind of see things better kind of in my mind's eye. I mean, if that was something that was introduced to me at five or six and I had decades of just kind of practicing that or having that being a daily part of my life, I can't imagine where I would be right now. So kids who are learning that really valuable tool young and are able to work on that for years and years and years, because that is a, that's a lifetime project of being mindful. Um, they're at a, a great advantage to, um, past decades or past generations of the folks in the workforce and just humans. I think they just, just, they have an advantage of just being better humans. Yeah. I think it's, we can all continue to learn about ourselves and our bodies and how to spend that time and use that time and refresh and re-energize. I'm the same. I don't always remember to do it, but when I do, especially in those moments, if I'm feeling like there's too much work or I'm overwhelmed or I'm not motivated, like stepping back and taking 10 minutes changes the whole trajectory of the day. But I often don't remember to do it either because I'm human. (laughs) And and I'm like, I'm overwhelmed and feeling like I have all these things to do. How can I take 10 minutes when if I take 10 minutes, all the other stuff is going to take me half the amount of time. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Building that habit into your life is 
It's a lot harder than it should be. Harder than it should be, <laughs> but it leads to like I, I asked my my wife and I asked this question, and it's for me, it's always the same thing. It's you know, what is one thing that you aren't doing that you know you should be doing that'll make your life better? And for me, it's every sadly, it's it's meditating and being mindful. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's hard for me. It's can, at times can be very very uncomfortable, but. After I do it, I never regret having done it. So that is kind of my ongoing challenge for myself is building that habit for me that that would be a habit of excellence because I know I met my best self after I I do my have a mindful moment or sit and meditate. And when we know there's that thing, whether it's meditation or for some people it's exercise, that we always feel better after we do it and we never regret the time we spent doing it. Those are pretty good clues that it's something we need to do more of. <laughs> so I I have one more question for you. And this is changing topic completely. But being that I run an elementary school, I love to hear stories of people's experiences from that time period. So if you have a story from a favorite teacher or a favorite event or a favorite project or field trip that you remember from elementary school, I'd love for you to share that. Uh, I'm really lucky. And I went to an elementary school where they just had fabulous teachers. Every teacher I had was fabulous. Two that stick out in my mind, however, um, Miss Downs, who taught me in first grade, and Miss Lindner, who taught me in second grade. Miss Downs, um, I, it took me a while to reflect upon this years later. Um, but she just, she loved teaching and she loved her kids. And we were all very, very aware of that. And she, every day, I I mean, I don't know what her personal life was, but every day you you knew she was coming in and those 23 to 25 students that were there, she was giving you her all. And my wife's a teacher, a first grade teacher, so I can know how draining that can be. And Especially now. Especially now. So I that learned appreciation of seeing my wife come home every day drained, uh, cause I know she has a similar philosophy of just kind of leaving it all out there at school and, um, really being drained by the time she gets home. Um, so that's something that I, I really appreciate. Uh, she also taught me or developed a, a love and passion for taking care of the environment. Which even to this day, when I see someone litter, my my skin crawls. Uh, <laughs> I have to go over and pick it up or something. Um, but yeah, just being aware of of the environment and you know making sure that we're taking care of of it for each other and ourselves is um, kind of a value that she instilled in me very very early. And then Miss Linder um, in second grade, even when I first day I walked in, like I could see she was a unicorn. Um, not only because of the way she conducted herself in the classroom, she was the first black teacher I had. And to see someone in that position for me was incredibly meaningful because through pre-K through second grade, all my, all my teachers were, were white. So to see someone who looked like me as a teacher was just kind of like an, an incredible experience for me. And she was it, like Miss Downs, just a phenomenal teacher who cared and and exposed us to new ideas and 
allowed us, gave us um, opportunities for kind of like deeper learning for things that we were really passionate about. I don't know how she was able to, how she managed that, but she did. And I know my life is richer because of those two teachers and um, because they not only loved me and cared for me and were really invested in, in seeing not just myself, but everyone succeed, but also fostering a sense of uh, like everyone in that class, we are, we're here for each other as well. So those are things that I still carry with me to this day. I still carry with me in my personal life and in my business. And uh, I guess it all started in first and second grade. So I'm forever indebted to uh, Miss Dance and Miss Lindley. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. I think as teachers, sometimes we forget just what an impact we can have on kids. Even just, you know, you didn't share a story about lizards or hamsters or painting underneath your desk, but just the love of a teacher who shows up every day and loves their students makes such a huge difference. I mean, it's not like kind of, uh, we, we love data and, and hard data, but it's it's more of just the, the softer skills that they were able to uh, open up my mind and heart to. And I was able to continue to develop these, those skills and that understanding of kind of where I am and how I fit in this classroom and how I fit in this world. You know, those things really can't be measured. And, um, for teachers, sometimes it can't be measured, um, in terms of your impact as much as we want to, um, harp on the data. They really do incredible work. And um, they're pillars of society, and I'm married to a teacher, so I'm kind of biased. But uh, they, they, especially now, what these teachers are doing—it's what you are doing—is incredibly underappreciated. You should be paid all the money and given all the things, uh, but you are creating such an incredible impact that will continue to live on for generations and generations, and really. The, the impact of the teacher can never truly be measured. And that's the truth. Yeah, I agree. And the other thing that you said was having a second grade teacher who was black, a teacher who looked like you, also making a big difference. And I saw something recently on LinkedIn. There was a poll about how many teachers you had that were, you know, who were black or who were brown or who were a different ethnicity than you were growing up. And I grew up not far from where you are. I grew up in Wisconsin near Madison. And I don't recall ever having a teacher of another background of another race until college. And even then it was Native American. It wasn't Black or Chinese or Hispanic. It was, I think that representation really matters so that kids get to see someone who looks like them. And if it's not the teacher, then making sure that we're bringing in speakers from other from other professions that can come in and kids can see people in a professional light doing things that are like them. Um, because even just that makes a huge difference. Absolutely. Yeah. Now that you mentioned Ms. Linder, she did a great job of bringing in diverse speakers and from diverse professions and really getting us exposed to good people doing good work from all types of backgrounds and, and shapes and colors. So. That is incredibly valuable, incredibly important. Um, so I'm sure you're, you're doing the same at your school. We're working on it. We're doing our best. <laughs> In a pandemic. Yeah. 
But I want to thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the work that you're doing with Tiny Docs. Thank your wife for teaching um, and sharing her stories and your stories with us. Um, I really appreciate it. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Rebel Educator podcast. To learn more about us, visit rebeleducator.com, where you can learn about our professional development opportunities for educators and students and see our project library. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out our progressive, inclusive elementary school, Up Academy, at upacademysf.com. We'd like to say a special thank you to Atmosphere for use of their audio track, Miho. Thanks again for joining us, and we wish you well no matter where your educational journey may lead.